Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files RPG podcast talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. This is the second part to episode 16, where we've returned to Call of Cthulhu with our special guest, Mike Mason, the line editor for the game. It's not just an extra part, it's a fully kick-started brand spanking new edition. Since we released the first part, we've had the sad news that Carl T. Ford has died. He was the editor, publisher and all-round engine behind Dagon fanzine. In episode 14 of the podcast, At Daily Dwarf talked about how the zine produced great articles, supported the literature, published creepy mythos stories and produced excellent scenarios for gaming and Lovecraft appreciation. In the previous part to this episode, Mike Mason credited the zine with generating a community of gamers around the game, which helped us get appreciation of why Call of Cthulhu was special. We have a lot to thank Carl for, so as a small token of appreciation, I'd like to dedicate this podcast to him. So, what have we got in store this time? Well, Mike Mason returns to face the Keeper's screen. I will roll on a table, apparently at random, and pick some choice anecdotes from Mike's gaming history. They're not all Call of Cthulhu either. There's D&D and Almost Traveller. Daily Dwarf has written a piece about the scenarios that appeared in White Dwarf and to remind us of how important the magazine was in helping us understand what it was all about. Judge Blythe, our rules lawyer, joins us to apply his assessment to the 7th edition rules. At the end, I have news about the dispatch of the zine to patron supporters and details of how you can be involved in the Grog Squad community. Without further ado... Ramblers, let's get rambling. Gamesmaster Screen. Welcome to the Gamesmaster Screen, part of the podcast where I'll roll on a table and apparently at random generate five topics for discussion with our special guest, Mike Mason. Hello, Mike. Hi, Dirk. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for coming back. This isn't just a Gamesmaster Screen. This is an any award-winning 7th edition Call of Cthulhu Keeper Screen. What do you think of that? <laughs> <laughs> Only the best for you. Okay, from the list of random stories that you've provided, I've created a table and I'm going to roll on it to suggest a topic so that you can tell us more. Does that sound okay? Sure. Okay, here we go. And it's number 10, At Your Door. Oh, okay. Uh, well, At Your Door is uh, an old... Um Curse and Call of Cthulhu campaign set what was then the modern day, which I guess must have been the kind of mid, yeah, the mid 1990s. Um, yeah, I I really like this campaign when it came out. It's like it's a slightly strange campaign, and I don't. It's one that um, I think you know is a bit chalk and cheese to to many people. However, I have real strong memories of running running the running the campaign for for my home group. Um, the campaign is all about this kind of. Uh, the world kind of descending into into madness and chaos, um, and um, one of the 
one of the kind of themes of the game is that the weather is changing and that it's getting hot. I think if I'm right, it's getting hotter and hotter. And you advise as the keeper as you're running it to kind of just to just keep referencing that to just say, you know, the weather's really warm today and just building up that kind of general heat level as you as you go through the campaign. And the reason that that kind of really sticks is that um, when we when I was running it, it was I can't remember exactly which year in the 1990s it was, but it was really hot. We, and we played it during this hot summer. And so we'd end up um, in the gaming room and, and just be absolutely stifled. And we'd end up going out uh, outside and uh, sitting on some garden table uh, into the darkness, you know, running this game. Is that, you know, the heat was starting to slowly dissipate in, in real life um, as, as, as we were running this game. And, and that really conspired to kind of create this kind of mood and atmosphere within the game itself. It just kind of really gelled. And, um, I, and of course, sitting outside as the sun's going down, um, still kind of hot because it's still pretty humid. And of course, you know, you get you get like, you know, birds and things rustling in the hedgerows, which was kind of perfect for, you know, when you're running the, um, I think it's the second or third uh, scenario in the campaign, which is, um, I can't remember the name they give it in the, uh, oh, I think it's Landscapes, the one that's based on a um, TUD <laughs> Klein story. And, um, and that's set in some, you know, wilderness farm with some strange thing wandering around the farm. And of course, that just mirrored where we were completely in terms of like rustling hedgerows and, uh, and darkness falling. So, uh, yeah, it was <laughs> so I've got quite strong memories of that and uh, and uh, well, having a lot of fun with it. Yeah. When I hear stories of Call of Cthulhu in the 90s, there seems to be lots of sensory tricks to create atmosphere in games. It seems almost like LARPing almost. Uh, I... I... I guess to some degree that yeah you know, that, that that's true. Um, I mean, blindfolding people, putting ice cubes down people's necks, things like that. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, we we we're guilty of some of that, particularly at conventions. And uh, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, we 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 never. I guess it's that kind of strange thing. We were always role players. We were never larpers at the time. That was a that was a whole bunch of different things that we weren't really into. However, we would steal some of their ideas, I think, uh, and uh, grudgingly uh, kind of accept that they, you know, they, they did some really cool stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, that kind of building atmosphere. I mean, yeah, certainly running the Call to Keepers, um, whilst the majority of games were you know, pretty standard, sat around the table, uh, there were a few kind of big event games we did, like Gatsby and the Great Race, where you know we were blindfolding people and moving them between between different games and, and, you know, randomly moving them around and uh, making strange noises and, um, and whatnot. I remember a, I remember a friend of mine uh, saying that uh, during one session he, he, he had a tin of squid Ooh. And, Ooh. And, and at an apt moment in the game poured it into a big bowl in front of all the players in the middle of the table and said, uh, you know, and stick your hands in that. That's Ugh. what I'm feeling at the moment. So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You seem to enjoy the convention one-shots, like a keeper uh, travelling around, uh, games mastering to strangers. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've, all, I've always enjoyed the convention format in terms of running, particularly Call of Cthulhu, because um, I think, you know, Cthulhu is well known for being a great convention game because you can, it's great for a one-shot because of the, you know, the nature of horror is that 
you know, if everyone dies, that's all cool, you know, because it's a horror game. Um, so um, I, re I enjoy, you know, playing with different people. You know, I've got my, you know, regular groups and playtest groups that I have these days. So, so going to a convention is, is, a, is, you know, real chance to kind of meet and play with some new people who could be very experienced Call of Duty players to people that have never played the game before. And so um, I always find that a really enjoyable experience. Um, yeah, okay, well, let's uh, have a look uh, back on the table and I'm going to roll again. Here we go. And here we go. Oh, 99. So that's a, a fumble on our table. And that's Traveller Denied. Ah, yes. <laughs> so this goes way back to the early days of my role-playing. Um, so I started out in D&D and then naturally progressed into RuneQuest because why wouldn't you? Um, and, um, and of course, there was the Holy Trilogy, wasn't there? There was D&D, RuneQuest and Traveller. They were, the, they were the three games. And yes, there was a few kind of you know, pretenders coming out, you know, at the time, but, but they were the three core games and, and, you know, you were obliged to really give them all a try, I always thought. So, um, I'd done the first two. And so I was really keen on, on playing Traveller in that, in the, that first edition box, you know, the old, uh, Beowulf, uh, free trailer calling was really, you know, really gripped my imagination and thought, oh, I've got to play this. Um, and I, the only person I knew that had, that had Traveller was, um, this guy, I think his name was Bruce, in the um, in the year of Bugmeet School. And Bruce, you know, was a big role player, and he came to the uh, the role playing club in school. And then, and uh, one day, I, I saw him getting you know getting the traveller books out at the beginning of the session, thinking, "Oh, this is this is my chance, you know, this is it." And uh, he and this couple of other guys were sat there, you know, starting starting to get ready to play. And I I went over and said, oh, "Could I?" Uh, I joined the game. Yeah, I really like to give Traveller go, uh, Traveller go, and <laughs> Bruce just turned to me with this stone face, saying, "No, it was for older boys." <laughs> 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 completely denied, and like just went away completely crestfallen. It's oh. like, well, sod you. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I wasn't allowed to play Traveller. So it was another year, I think, at least before I actually got to play. And I think I ended up buying it myself by then and uh, running it for the group, but. Um, <laughs> was um, it worth the wait? I, I, <laughs> no, <laughs> hand on heart, I'm not sure it was, but uh, but I did, I did enjoy it. I mean, I did enjoy it, but um, it was one of those games. Uh, unlike the others I played, it just didn't really stick. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it was. I'm. I'm not a. I guess the whole kind of like <laughs> working out huh. jump speeds and all that. Oh yeah. Just yeah. didn't really fire my engine. That was all dull to me. I wanted to kind of land on the land on the alien planet and find some yeah. ruins and <laughs> and then there'd be some sort of alien horror eating us. Which again just goes back to that. I like I like playing horror games. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> and so the kind of harder science fight, uh, the science fiction. Um, well, well, it, well, vectors are not that scary, are they? <laughs> exactly. Just didn't. It kind of just. Uh, Took that all oh, out. Took oh, that all out for me. Okay, then. well, let's uh, have a look at uh, the next one. And the next one is 77. It's Laser Burn. Ah, well, Laser Burn. This is a this is a this is an oldie but a goodie. Um, it's, it's a well. It, this is Laser Burn is a set of wargaming science fiction rules written by Brian Ansell in about 
1980, I think. Um, so it's a real forerunner of, of uh, Warmer 40K because, I mean, it featured things like, you know, dreadnought armor and bolt guns and, and whatnot. So, I mean, there's a, you know, as far as I can see, there's a, there is a kind of a direct kind of path between that and, uh, and 40K. Um, and anyway, I mean, I didn't know anything about it, but um, I, I, by this time I lived in, uh, in Loughborough in the Midlands. And uh, there was a there was a, a miniature shop in Loughborough called Skytrex. Um, it was right, you know, not in town. It was like on the outskirts, hidden away, and you only kind of knew about it if you knew about it. Um, so we'd go down there, and this and Skytrex basically what they did they they actually mail order they were a mail order business of producing historical miniatures in in all sorts of forms, but all mainly really really tiny. Some of them like five mil high because they were just blobs of metal as far as I could see. Um, but what they carried was a load of like this old kind of really kind of old school, um, you know, kind of chapbook kind of rules uh, for all different sorts of wargaming. And of course, most of that was just not really of interest to me, kind of Napoleonics and, uh, and all that kind of stuff, you know, not really my scene. So I'd look around these things and occasionally I'd pick up maybe a sort of a World War II, you know, tank commander kind of game, read it and then just completely have no idea how you would actually play it. Um, so the day I went in and there was this thing called laser burn with like, you know, people with ray guns on the front and aliens were like, yes, this is it. And um, I think it cost me like, I don't know, a quid or 70p or something. And... Um, uh, I got this home and, and I could, and I kind of could make, I kind of thought I could make sense of the rules. Um, it came, it had this pullout, this kind of double page pullout, which was completely filled front and back with a million tables. You know, <laughs> that kind of classic kind of war game thing, you know, roll on this table if, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I kind of, in my head, fashioned a way that you, you know, how to play it. It also went with, um, it also used 15 millimeter sci-fi figures, which you could buy from Skytrex. So I bought a load of these, took it to school and um, started, you know, running it. And, um, and we all, we just really got into it. You know, we'd have, we, there was no story. It was just like, you know, here's a scene, you know, you, you're a bunch of police, you kind of mm -hmm. judge dread type police. You're, you're a robot. You're these aliens, you're these mercenaries. <laughs> and we just meet around a, uh, a classroom kind of desk during lunch hours and just bash it out. And um, it's fantastic. We actually had loads of fun. But because <laughs> <laughs> it was these kind of like, I don't know, they were kind of modern desks at the time, which were just the kind of like four mica kind of top desks um, that you could use a pencil and you could write directly onto the desk and it would <laughs> like work. So you could actually draw battlefields on the desk in pencil. And when there's a big crater explosion, you could draw that in in pencil, and you know. And so by the time we'd finished, we'd just desk covered in graffiti, and we'd think nothing of it, and we'd just go, "Oh well, you know, it rubs off." But we, but the, the dinner bell would go, we'd just leave. So whoever came into that lesson afterwards would just find their desk like this pencil battlefield of, of nonsense. So uh, yeah, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, oh, laser burn is um, a real. Um, a real memory lane kind of thing, definitely. And uh, I think you can still get. I think you can still get it. I think they're. I don't know who's selling it oh. now, but I think you can actually still buy it because I, I got. Oh. I was mentioned it to an old colleague from Games Workshop one day a few years back, and then uh, 
at Christmas, he turned up with a with a with a copy of it for me as a Christmas present. So uh, that was wonderful. Okay. And of course, the thing is with uh, with Laserburn, it's got the Brian Ansell uh, Nottingham uh, connection, which is where you live. And in episode fourteen, we featured Ian Marsh, who famously refused to go to Nottingham. Um, can you give anything in its defence? Well, it is. Uh, yeah, I live. I live in Nottingham. So I'm. Yes, I mean, uh, Ian. I'm sure. I'm sure you had your reasons, but uh, <laughs> but Nottingham is is a great place to live. It's uh, it's certainly um, you know not only is it central to the country and therefore accessible to. You know, getting around is, is very easy, but it's yeah, it's a great, oh, it's a great place. I mean, it's it's a real. I mean, obviously, I think at the time it wasn't necessarily the hobby hotspot. It may it may have been it may be today, but um, but certainly today, um, you've not only got Games Workshop, you've got loads of other um, you know games companies um, you know existing um, Battlefront and um, Warlord Games and uh, you know to name just a couple, but. Um, but you've, but you've, you know, it's a real kind of creative hub as well. You've got the um, the uh, games museum here, the electronic games museum, and um, they have a big kind of gaming uh, kind of event every year, which is kind of all computery stuff, but it's still gaming. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a great place. You know, it's, it's uh, there's we've got two games cafes now. I suppose I should name check really Ludorati and. Uh, Dice Cafe, which are both fantastic places to go and uh, play a game. Um, so you know, it's you know, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got trams now, which is even better. <laughs> so Ian, you should come up and have a have a cup of coffee. Well, you know, if this uh, game things doesn't work for you, perhaps you could work with the tourist board. <laughs> 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 okay, next up, and it's a natural twenty, so. Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, yeah. Well, as I say, I think I uh, my you know my first role playing experience was playing D and D, uh, and so D and D was a game I played for a long, long time. I mean, occasionally I still even do, but um, but uh, played that for a long time. And um, one of the I think one of the memorable things I kind of remember was um, at school. It's a kind of an offshoot to the club. I, 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 and this all stemmed from Imagine Magazine and Dragon, that I'd read in these things about these fabled things called roleplay tournaments. That I had no idea what that meant, but it sounded really cool. And I thought, well, I'm going to run a roleplaying tournament then. And <laughs> and I just had to. I just decided, well, how do I do it? Okay, well, I write a scenario that no one's ever played, and I'll run that same scenario for for different groups of people. And I'll, I'll basically award each person in the group points as I go through the game for doing cool things. And that was my, you know, very um, <laughs> un- unscientific marking method. And so I, I kind of, I don't know how I, how I got, I got the word around that I was going to do this. And so I had, I don't know, three or four groups, I think, of people. I said, you know, you've got to get a group together and I'll, I'll then run it for you. And so uh, I ran it, you know, these four or five groups. And, you know, I was quite diligent in the first, you know, the first few of trying to, you know, you know, give people a little, you know, I'd have this little bit of paper with their names against it and I'd put a little point. And um, but when, you know, when when they did something good, like they they, they killed the they killed the orcs and they uh, they got past a trap. So they got two points for that. And I did all that. And then, 
then I remember in the final game, I was just having so much fun. It was just, it was just like, I don't know, the, it was just a really fun play session, and and the group were making me laugh a lot. That I just forgot the score, and I just thought, wait, they can win. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they won, and I don't think there was a prize. I think I don't think I'd even bothered to get a prize. I think I just go, oh yeah, you won. <laughs> that was it, really. But, <laughs> but uh, that was my first formative uh, days of uh, running a tournament. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant. Well, you said that you're selective in a game group, and you still play D and D. I'm in a group that's been meeting for uh, what probably twenty years, I guess, on and off. Um, and so we, I mean, to be honest, we haven't played D and D in that group for a, for for a few years now. But but certainly, um, when fourth edition came out, one of the guys said he was going to run it. So we played uh, we played a bit of fourth edition then, um, and. Um, uh, and also, um, I had a long stint of playing D and D while I was actually writing and uh, editing Dagon, um, not Dagon, uh, the Whisperer magazine back in the um, late nineties. I lived down in Milton Keynes then, and uh, had a group of friends who were based in Northampton, and um, they ran a very long, long, long running serious D and D campaign that I was invited to join. And in fact, I actually inherited a character. Uh, and um, you know, was told, you know, this is how the character acts. This is how they. This is how they. Um, you know, this is what they think of all the other players in the group. And I kind of had to, you know, follow their guidance, otherwise I wouldn't be allowed to, you know, continue. Um, but you know, played in that game for for some years actually. That one campaign that I, I, I kind of wonder if it's still probably even still going. Um, but uh, so yeah, I played a fair bit of D and D in the time, but at, um, I haven't played so much recently. And I haven't really given a fifth edition a try yet. Um, in fact, the, the last time I played D and D, and it technically isn't D and D, but it is really, is uh, a friend has got the uh, the board games. Um, what is you know the is it the um, it's a it's a Ravenloft one and a kind of an Underdark one or something, yeah. And um, we played that, and as we were playing that, I just said, "Well, this is fourth edition D and D," because it's clearly fourth edition D&D just with cards and things and we all went yeah it is exactly fourth edition D and we all then agreed this is exactly how you should play fourth edition D&D as a board game because it it just works much better that way um uh, you know te- technically without the role playing elements um but and that's you know hopefully what fifth edition um, I think addressed is to bring bring back a little bit more of the role play into the system but um but that was the last time which it was only a, a couple of months ago actually let me give this the final shake. A good, a good shake. Here goes, and oh, it's a, it's critical. Masks of Nephletep. Ah, oh, well, now you're talking. Now you're talking. So, um, so my my one of my school friends' brother-in-law um, picked up masks. We knew nothing about it other than we were invited to come and run running this campaign and um and from the opening moments of uh, finding you know jackson elias the reporter's body in his hotel room we were we were completely hooked and uh, and this this you know became you know a long-running campaign for us um i can't and the 
to, for the life of me, I can't remember what character I played. I think it may have been to the annoyance of other players. My favourite character that I created at the time called Joe the Lemon Drop Kid, which was this this kind of Michael Caine looking kind of private detective, but but it was American, who who would always carry a packet of lemon drops and would be very cool about you know eating them at, at, at precise moments and offering them to NPCs. Which is a great annoyance of all the other players who, who all decided they completely hated him, <laughs> uh, which obviously made me want to play him even more. Um, and um, we went through, but he unfortunately came to a very sticky end in the London chapter of the campaign, where he was actually captured by the cultists and uh, and did end up being chained to a uh, a, a rock in some. Uh, in some garden out in the middle of nowhere, and being, uh, I think the word would be ravaged by uh, by some uh, outer god. Um, to much to the great amusement, I have to say, of the of the keeper and the rest of the players, who still to this day will remind me of that particular instance. Um, and um, but nevertheless, uh, you know, as as all good players in masks will do at some point, um, created a new character to continue, and. Um, and we got, <laughs> and, and yeah, so the campaign started to come off the rails when um, uh, my friend Winnie, his character, who was the uh, who was the book learning one, um, he was the guy that we, you know would just collect all the kind of you know the mysterious tomes that we found as we went through the campaign, and was the one who was reading them, and um, <clears throat> excuse me, and he. Um, so he had all the, you know, he had the Necronomicon and then Cult the Ghouls and yeah, about 20 different Mythos books all stacked there that he was carrying around with him around the world. And then one day <laughs> he just said in the middle of the session, so I'm going to just leave with all the books. Oh, no. <laughs> and I'm going to run off to the mountains where I'm going to study them for the rest of my life. And um, <coughs> we, we all look kind of like askance at him. And the keeper said, okay, is that what you want to do? Yeah, okay, well, you've done that then. So he basically ran off near the end of, with all of the clues, <laughs> all of the access to any spells, or anywhere of us actually kind of understanding what was going on, um, <coughs> leaving us completely stranded. Um, so that, that went down well. And then, uh, and then <laughs> that led to us um, ending up on some boat and finding this glowing green rock, which we thought was like, oh, this has got to be really important. We'll steal the green glowing rock and, uh, you know, that'll, that'll stop the cultists. And then, and then about a session later, we all died of radiation poisoning because it was radioactive <laughs> and that thereby ended the campaign. But, uh, yes, <laughs> so quite a memorable kind of experience, really. It was, uh, it was good times. <laughs> Why do you feel the appeal of the uh, campaign is so enduring. I think it was. Um, I think it's two things. I think one, it was you know one of the first campaigns to really kind of get the notion of campaign play right, in that it had this. It, it was. It had a really, really strong connections between the uh, the different kind of elements or scenarios within the campaign. That there, there was a there was a clue path that you could follow that made logical sense. Um, so I think that, in one sense, it was just constructed very well. Um, and secondly, um, it, it was genuinely this kind of like world-spanning 
I, I, it, 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 it was very pulpy as well. It, so it really, it really kind of um, captured your imagination as you were kind of going around and fighting these different kind of monsters and cults and. And it had this kind of real significant kind of you know ending to it in in a way, and it, and and it yeah the way it was constructed it allowed you to kind of choose your path through it. You weren't following this kind of train track through. You were, you kind of had the well the the semblance of choice into where you would go through the campaign. So I think you know it was because it was the first campaign to really kind of nail that right. Um, it kind of it got a lot of play, and so the kind of word of mouth. Of, about it and reviews kind of you know bigged it up and and so it kind of has always kind of been held up as a as a as a, a, a good campaign and so I think that sort of fed it well in terms of it becoming considered a you know a classic in that way um, was probably I think it's probably what it what it is you know it's got some very memorable scenes very memorable characters that really stand out I guess too we've said previously that the campaign was responsible for and giving the game a shot in the arm and in some ways responsible for the longevity of Call of Cthulhu because it showed what was possible, what was uh, what the game was capable of because normally we were playing very small low-key games but as you say this was a, a world-spanning event and epic in scale. Yeah, I guess um, yeah, because Call of Cthulhu falls um, very much into two styles of play it's it's very clearly a really good game for a one shot you know that kind of horror film kind of style game um and but what masks did was to kind of illustrate that you can play an extended campaign with this you can actually play a campaign where where the sort of slow creep of horror the the sense of mystery and investigation is really to the fore um and um and i think you know i always say you know crime fiction in terms of a genre, is um, it's I believe the the most successful in terms of sales of any literary genre. Um, you know, crime. You know, you only have to turn on TV to find that. You know, crime programs are pretty popular. Um, so that kind of um, engagement with a mystery uh, that masks really presents in a in a, in a you know in a, in a very good way um, captures that imagination. So I think you know, in some ways, I think you're not far wrong that. The, um, the, I think at the time, you know, it really kind of, you know, as you say, gave the game a shot in the arm and introduced a, a, a you know, whilst there had been you know, at least one of the campaign um, produced for Call of Cthulhu before that, Masks was the first one, I think, to really nail it, uh, to really kind of get it right and to, uh, and to offer that style of play to, you know, to people that I think captured that, uh, captured people's imagination. And at Necronomicon, you've announced that there's going to be a whole new 7th edition version uh, about to be released uh, in autumn 2017. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, so uh, about eight months of work of uh, effectively um, redeveloping masks and uh, and updating it to, to the 7th edition Call of Cthulhu. Um it's kind of come to a close now for me that uh, it's been a it's been a <laughs> an interesting experience because obviously what what I did I brought in some other authors to help me work on it because it's a, cause it's, a, it's not just a big beast it's a very complicated beast 
um, that requires quite a you know a, a high degree of attention to detail because there are um, the number of links between the different chapters have you know have got to work and they've got to be logical. So I brought in um, people with a you know a good history of uh, of understanding both Call of Cthulhu and writing campaigns. So people like Lynn Hardy, uh, Scott Dorwood, and Paul Paul Fricker. Um, and again, because we're all on the same time, uh, all at the same time, we could actually get a lot of communication and flow through going, you know, rapidly. Um, so we, you know, we were able to kind of have this kind of constant stream of communication, which I think was kind of essential with a with a with a uh, campaign like Mass because it is so interconnected. Um, so we'd have, you know, somebody who was a primary writer on a particular chapter, who would become the expert on, you know, what was going on in that chapter. So when you know somebody else who was writing another chapter was needing to kind of refer to that chapter, we could just directly have a chat and um, and uh, you know sort it out basically and understand well this I've got this clue that's going to feed into your chapter. Uh, where should it go to? And, and likewise, you know, where 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 one comes back. Um, and the reason I'm saying that is because um, a lot of clues existed, um, but um, what we wanted to do is really tighten them up and make sure that they were they were clear for the keeper. Um, and so the key, so the, the idea was to not really change what was happening in masks, but change the, um, or support rather than change, um, the keeper in running the campaign. Um, so, uh, it was easier for them to do because it is a complicated campaign, a lot of NPCs. And so, you know, it was going through and, and basically building and well, reinforcing that kind of, um, the logic threads through the campaign and highlighting them for the keeper, whilst at the same time updating the scenarios a little bit, giving them a few, a few little twists here and there to you know keep them fresh. Um, also uh, addressing things like the gender balance in the campaign, because there's very very few females in the campaign, um, and um, it didn't really make a lot of sense. It was just you know, there should be a better gender balance. So, so um, you know, we, we adjusted some of the NPCs to uh, uh, address that gender balance just to make it a bit more realistic, to be honest. Um, and um, there were a few plot holes. Uh, there were a few things that are mentioned in the original text that kind of leave nowhere, that, that kind of just leave you asking, well, what, what happens there then? What, 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 what is that going on there? So, um, so we filled in some of those potholes and elaborated on them to create kind of new locations and scenes that didn't change the campaign, but added added some further depth to it. I guess is the way you would look at it. Um, and um, and the other the the one I guess the general complaint against masks over the years has always been that kind of well, you all start off as good friends of this Jackson Elias. How do you become good friends? I mean, most of, and most of the time, nine out of ten times. It's actually not an issue at all. You just accept it as part of the as part of your character's background, and then just move on. Uh, it's never really been a been a big problem. But obviously, there's a desire for it. So um, I worked with Scott Dawood on creating um, a new kind of prologue chapter to to the campaign set in Peru, where you actually meet Jackson Lights for the first time, and hopefully by the end of that scenario. Well, one, hopefully you're not all dead. And second, <laughs> secondly, you haven't shot Jackson Lies. And thirdly, uh, hopefully by the end, if those two things haven't happened, you uh, you actually are friends, if not good friends. So um, it, it provides some kind of, you know, a, a little bit of backstory before the actual 
main campaign begins. Um, so, yeah. I hope uh, Warren Versat uh, remains. Would you like to join me with a pint? Oh, no, he's he's definitely in there. He's, uh, yes, yeah, I know. He's, uh, he's, I mean, what we tried to do, we, I, don't, I don't think we really cut any characters. What we may have done is... is um, modified their name to be realistic there's some there's certain there's some um cultural names that are actually nonsense in the original campaign which you know is understandable you know the internet didn't exist and and uh, and uh, you've got to use what you've got to use but um but nowadays we can obviously you know hopefully improve and get the names you know culturally correct so uh, we've corrected a few names in that sense or, or modified the names rather than corrected them um and um so uh, you know Whilst they may they may be a different name, they are the same character if you see what I mean. So um, so yeah, so a bit of modification there. Well, it sounds like a great uh, great project. So when can we expect it to be published? Yeah, so uh, it, it is all written. It's actually currently being proofread at the moment, and uh, mm -hmm. art is uh, art has been commissioned uh, because obviously this is going to be a, a, a you know hardback uh, full color. Um, in fact. Uh, I've just saw the first batch of player handouts come come in from uh, uh, one of our um, one of our creatives uh, freelancers, uh, Andrew Law, who um, I actually worked with back in the day on Dark Heresy, the 40k role-playing game. Um, and Andy has done some fantastic stuff. He's doing some maps for it as well, but he just sent in some of the handouts, and they are they are jaw-droppingly beautiful. You know, they're period handouts in full colour. Um, and I just saw the the famous you know matchbook of the stumbling tiger bar, uh, and uh, he's he's done the handout that you you know you've got the matchbook there drawn, but he's also you know it's also a diagram for how you cut it out and make it into a matchbox and that, that kind of stuff, which is just uh, just wonderful. Um, so yeah, so that's that's all that's all coming together. Sorry, I'm going the long way around the houses to say that. That's all in process at the moment. We've obviously got to lay it out and do some final checking and things like that. But our, but our aim is to try and get the PDF of it out before Christmas. So that's hopefully, you know, late November, um, all being well. Uh, but, you know, all being well, it should, the PDF should be out before Christmas. And then once the PDF is out, we wait to, you know, wait two or three weeks to just see if, if we've missed any uh, typos or whatever, get those corrected and then get it off to print. And, and the print process is normally normally three to four months so sometime around march april all being well next year the the print version should be uh, should be uh, available i hope it's not too late to persuade rick Mainz to do it in a box <laughs> we had a big conversation about boxes and hardbacks and things like that and uh, we uh, i'm not uh, well i don't i, I don't think it's going to be in a box because oh. there's various reasons why it doesn't really make sense to do that but um I know there's all reasons, but, but it's just better. Yeah. <laughs> However, the, the format we're now thinking of, I think, I don't think you're going to disappoint it because, you know, whilst it's not a box, hopefully there's going to be a bit of a box-like thing going on around it in some to some degree. Oh, well, I say box, more more slipcase. So. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But um, if all, all goes well, it should be um, it should be a very gorgeous uh, a gorgeous product that uh, hopefully will uh, you know just like the very first one did hopefully continue to inspire and uh, and create great gaming experiences you know for the next uh, thirty years as well all being well. <laughs> 
Well, thank you very much for joining us on the Grognar Files, uh, Mike. It's been great having you. No worries. Thank you. And, and I'll uh, pass on your details to Ian Marsh. <laughs> Daily Dwarf! The two figures pause briefly before the vast Cyclopean entrance, then hauled the accursed portal open. Released from long eons entombed, the fetid air swirled about the pair, assaulting their senses like the exaltation from the charnel pit of some forgotten hell. Undaunted, the two figures entered the crypt, swallowed by the eldritch blackness within. As their eyes slowly adjusted to the Stygian gloom, they beheld an immense altar of vast antiquity. Hewn in a time when humanity quailed in the darkness, and monumental beings of cruel intent bestrode the earth. Unknowable, tenebrous forms were carved into the altar's bay relief, defying comprehension. One of the companions stepped forward and slowly traced his fingers over the benighted atrocity, finding patterns in the hideous, indescribable contortions of the stone to reveal loathsome blasphemies that man was never meant to know. He cast a questioning glance back to his colleague. Here, Blythe, do you think this uh, Shoggoth is holding an obnob? Yes, the Grognard files is back in Lovecraft country, this time on a magical mystery tour through White Dwarf scenarios for Call of Cthulhu. It's interesting that, although the game was released in 1981, it wasn't until June 83 and issue 42 that the first article for Call of Cthulhu appeared, written by Marcus Rowland, who else, and titled Cthulhu Now. It looked at translating the game into the modern day. That's the modern day of the 1980s, of course, with the knowledge of pet basic and an ability to extract data from CFAX and Prestel could be used to take down the great old ones. Why the delay? Well, I think it took the article and scenario writers a little while to get to grips with this tentacle beast, for Call of Cthulhu is a very different kind of role-playing game from what had gone before. This was not an exercise in hack and slash, or the accumulation of power and wealth. Combat had been de-emphasised, with investigation as the character's primary motivation. Uncovering a trail of clues that linked to what appeared in a relatively minor event, and following that trail down darker paths to reveal an ultimate cosmic horror was a very different template for a game. Oh, I know that some traveller scenarios involved an element of investigation too, but they inevitably ended with the production of weaponry and a final shootout. Characters weren't expected to hang around a week after week from one scenario to another, the defining mechanic of the game, sanity, resulted in the PCs deteriorating as the game progressed, spiralling down into madness and death. So, with this new gaming paradigm to understand, it's not surprising that articles and scenarios took a little while longer to appear in the pages of White Dwarf. Marcus Rowland followed up his initial article with some scenario outlines in the next issue, but it wasn't until issue 50 in early 84, that we got the first Call of Cthulhu scenario proper, The Watchers of Warberswick. But after that, 
scenarios appeared regularly, with a number of writers taking the ideas of the game and really running with them in a new and innovative directions. The new theme of investigation into horror was always to the fore, but against that backdrop, Cthulhu scenario writers came up with a wide variety of different settings. While mixing humour, twists, red herrings and pulp action to freshen up that theme and keep the players guessing. That's not to say that there aren't some issues. Dirk and Blythe spoke in the last part of this episode about the conflict in Call of Cthulhu between the player character's helplessness in the face of unspeakable horrors and player agency, where no matter how awful the cosmic vistas the players are confronted with, they still want to do something. That conflict between what you might call a purist Lovecraftian approach to the game and a more pulp direction is present and sometimes in the same scenario, highlighting the unevenness of tone that Dirk identified can unbalance a game. There's another conflict in some of the scenarios when it comes to player agency though, and it's the conflict that can lurk at the heart of an investigative scenario. How do you give players genuine freedom of choice while at the same time peeling away the layers of the onion skin to reveal the single conclusion to the mystery? Can the game of Call of Cthulhu be run in a sandbox? Or does the resolution of the mystery inevitably lead to a certain amount of railroading? As we'll see, some White Dwarf scenarios handle this better than others. In discussing these scenarios, I'll try and avoid spoilers where possible. The statue of limitations for spoilers on 30-year-old scenarios must have long since expired, but it's just possible that you may still want to play through some of these adventures. Indeed, the beauty of these Call of Cthulhu scenarios with their emphasis on story and investigation, above reliance on large blocks of stats, means that they're easily adapted to more recent editions of the game, and even to other Cthulhu role-playing games. So, sharpen up your library skills and grab an Elder Sign as we take a look through a number of Cthuloid highlights from the pages of White Dwarf. We'll start with the aforementioned The Watchers of Walbur's Wick by John Sutherland. The name might sound like a ropey old episode of Doctor Who, but don't let that put you off. It's a solid and engaging scenario, Perhaps fittingly for the first full-length Call of Cthulhu scenario to appear in White Dwarf, it has a classic Lovecraftian setup. The PCs are a group of 1920s academics, charged with heading into an isolated seaside community to investigate a mysterious bone in a local museum. With the benefit of 30-odd years of gaming hindsight, you don't exactly need to be Sherlock Holmes to guess the nature of the threat that the PCs face but when it was released it seemed very novel and strange. There's not much emphasis on combat and the PCs have a reasonably free reign to explore the coastal town and piece together what has been happening. The only real criticism that I have is that the threat, such as it is, is rather remote. If the PCs do nothing, the threat might just go away of its own accord. That issue is easily remedied though, when I ran this in the past, I had a relative as one of the PCs kidnapped. The party then had no choice but to actively pursue the mystery to its conclusion, whether the creatures wanted to be left alone or not. One oddity. 
The scenario is accompanied by an illustration of a lizard man by Ian McCaig. It's a great picture, but well, well, there's one problem. There's no lizard men in the scenario. If John Sutherland's first scenario is very much of the Lovecraft tradition, his second, The Last Log, with Steve Williams and Tim Hall from issue 56, really showed the versatility of the Call of Cthulhu system. This is the mythos in the far future. Having said that, the echoes from the 1980s are deafening. The PCs are the crew of SS Thatcher, a space freighter for a mining company. <laughs> Take that, Maggie. And in their investigation of an abandoned ship, there's a strong influence from the film Alien. Interestingly, I also saw parallels from the follow-up Aliens, but then I realised that this was published in 1984, two years before the release of that film. Was James Cameron a white dwarf reader, I wonder? Anyway, the single location is illustrated with a diorama photograph rather than a map, making me wonder whether this scenario had its origins in a convention game. This is reinforced by the relatively light focus on investigation. Instead, an escalating stream of events is thrown at the PCs, demanding that they react. A lone survivor of the original ship, some homeworld rebels and, of course, a mythos nasty are all added into the mix. There's some nice touches of White Dwarf-related humour too. The pilot of the original ship is one Marsh, Gascoigne, fate unknown, never to be seen or heard of again. And some strangely incongruous details. Despite this being the 23rd century, the captain of the original expedition recorded his log handwritten in a notebook. Despite one or two confusing details, one PC is supposed to be suffering from acute paranoia, how the games master is supposed to link that into the events is never explained. It's an enjoyable scenario with a novel setup and would work very well as a convention game. In issue 66, Andy Bradbury took inspiration not from Lovecraft, but from William Hope Hodgson and his occult detective Karnaki, the Ghost Finder, with the scenario The Horse of the Invisible, based on the tale of the same name. The play characters are investigating hauntings of an equine variety in a lonely manor house, and in a nice twist from the norm, they are encouraged to be sceptical and to seek rational explanations for the events that they witness. However, for me, this scenario is a little too scripted. Despite the PCs having links to one of the NPC's protagonists and witnessing various ghostly manifestations, there's not really much for them to actually do. There's a danger that the scenario just happens around them, with the PCs just as passive observers. Maybe that's a result of trying to base the scenario a little too closely on the Hodgson story. I like the setting, and there's some effective scenes peppering the scenario, so there's good adventure in here, fighting to get out. I just feel that some work is needed to improve that all-important element of player agency. Andy Bradbury was at it again in issue 75, giving us the scenario Heart of the Dark. In rereading the Call of Cthulhu scenarios in preparation for this piece, I think Heart of the Dark differed the most from how I remembered it. My recollection of it was as a dark, brooding mystery suffused with the spirit of a case of 
Charles Dexter Ward. On rereading it, though, I now wonder if Andy Bradbury's tongue was very firmly in his cheek when penning the adventure. It has something of throwing the kitchen sink feel to it, as every Lovecraftian horror uh, trope it can think of is included. We have the streets of Harkham, a mysterious count in an isolated castle deep in the Carpathians, a butler straight out of the Adams family, the Illuminati, a big bad from the Cthulhu mythos, and an odd little bit of gun porn, if that's your thing. As Andy Bradbury says in his introduction, it's a veritable school of red herrings looking for someone to hoodwink. Some of the clues that lead the players from one location to another are a little tenuous. Even if your job was an investigator, would you really jump into a transatlantic steamer to America based solely on the maker's label in a dead man's jacket? And one or two nudges from the keeper are required to keep the PCs to get the most out of the scenario. As long as players buy into the mood and style of the adventure though, this could be tremendous fun, particularly if using the new Pope Cthulhu rules. It's also a nice touch that it features three different endings of increasing mythositude, if that's a word. Great fun. It's been mentioned once already, but we can't talk of Call of Cthulhu scenarios without discussing White Dwarf scenario writer extraordinaire Marcus L. Rowland. He wrote five adventures for the game in all, using an impressive variety of settings and tone. In brief, we had... Draw the blinds of yesterday, with a modern day setting and an immediate rest opening. The players have to an account for a missing time in their lives, following a mysterious lady with Jedi powers in an adventure that deftly mixes Cthulhu mythos with Greek legend. The Surrey Enigma, another immediate rest introduction, albeit of a gentler kind this being an adventure of a 1920s vintage. The tone of this scenario is a little uneven. It evokes Lovecraftian idea of fragments of mythos knowledge slowly being pieced together to reveal a cosmic horror, while at the same time featuring more pulpy elements. Bitey, jumping skulls, anyone? The ending is low-key, although it can be used as a staging point for something more significant. Fear of flying, an enjoyable scenario, an interlude for when the PCs are redlining across the map. It's rumble at the tin inn in the sky, with an added mythos threat. Good Indiana Jones-style pulp fun. The Paddington Horror, a rescue mission for a missing PC. This is a very stripped-down investigation, and all the better for it. Most of the options for the party lead into a downbeat ending. And, of course, in issue 86, Marcus Rowland gave us Curse of the Bone, the winner of the 2015 White Dwarf Scenario Slam. See the Daily Dwarf's very infrequently updated blog for details. Set in modern-day Britain, it brings the Cthulhu mythos to the seedy streets of London, with their used car lots and crumbling sewers. I think this change of scene accounts for its enduring popularity, particularly with British gamers. It does feature one or two cases of the investigators having to make successful library use of the role to get a clue 
that progresses the adventure. Taken at face value, what are they supposed to do if they fail? Hang around till uh, Ken Height writes Trail of Cthulhu, presumably. And then the trail of clues is fairly linear, albeit with some amusing blind alleys. But the grimy urban setting, ably illustrated by Marketing McKenna, is very effective and brings to mind the mythos tales of Ramsey Campbell. When it comes to ambition, few scenarios can match Graham Staplehurst's Ancient and Modern from issues 80 to 81. Inspired by the writings of Brian Lumley, the adventure features two sets of characters, one in the Hyborian-influenced ancient setting of Themyra, to be used using AD&D, and the other in the modern-day setting, well, 1920s, to be run using Call of Cthulhu. As Graham Staplehurst says in his introduction, for the GM, the scenario gets fairly complicated. The initial section in ancient times is very well written, with a magical battle between demonic forces and the last remaining good wizard. But it's a bit too scripted and exposition heavy, with the danger that the party just has to stand around and observe the machinations of these great powerful sorcerers. Much better is the section in the modern times, a classic Cthulhu setup where the PCs must interrupt a cult's summoning ritual in a secluded chateau. There are many more options for the players here, many different approaches they can take, but there is a chance that the entire space-time continuum can be destroyed. And that's just in part one. In part two, the parties switch time streams and each must then quest to return themselves to their proper time. Graham Staplehurst sets himself the interesting exercise of translating staples from one game, e.g. a wyvern in ancient times and a shotgun-wielding farmer in modern, into the stats for the other system, and he largely succeeds, making for some novel encounters along the way. However, the powerful wizard continues to dominate the narrative in ancient times and the players remain largely spectators to the plot. It's also difficult to know how to play the ancient characters in modern times situation. Players' knowledge can all too easily influence that of the characters, and I think that this could descend into a fish-out-of-water laughs, which isn't really fitting with the rest of the scenario. But putting these gripes aside, this is a scenario epic in scope, with a lot to recommend it to a resourceful and enthusiastic games master. The final stop on our tour is my favourite Call of Cthulhu scenario from White Dwarf, Ghost, Jackal, Kill by Graham Davis in issue 79. Set in 1920s San Francisco, it features a memorable exotic cast of NPCs, including the actress Theda Barra, trying to resurrect her career in a gothic Egyptian romance, and Dash Hill Hammett, fresh from the Pinkerton Detective Agency, now working as a private eye. And, who knows, maybe he'll be inspired to write down these crazy stories someday. It's an intoxicating mixture into which is added a very powerful cult leader, a rediscovered mythos tome, a determined journalist, and the very brutal murder of an ex-stage magician. 
It uses the classic onion skin approach of uncovering clues that lead to further events and revelations, but pleasingly not in a linear fashion. The players can structure their investigations in many different ways and it can take an either an aggressive or a softly, softly approach to uncovering the mystery. What I find particularly clever is that at the outset of the adventure, the PCs can unwittingly summon a very nasty mythos creature, dooming the party from the very beginning. The rest of the scenario can then play out as a foreshadowing of their ultimate fate as it slowly approaches. Great stuff and a classic downbeat Lovecraftian ending. In the unlikely event that any of the PCs do survive, this scenario can always be used as a prequel to the Games Workshop adventure, The Statue of the Sorcerer. With some fantastic illustrations from Dave Carson and Steve Begg, this really is the White Dwarf Call of Cthulhu scenario par excellence. Suddenly, the investigators recoiled in horror at the ominous shuffling sound of movement coming from within the altar. Unable to run or call out, they were helpless, their sanity blasted from their frail human psyches as they watched the door open from out of the altar and a figure emerge from the fearful dark. All right, lads, said you like me new shed? Just blithe it, Rose. Welcome to the room of role-playing rambling. I'm joined by Judge Blythe. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. And uh, this time we're going to speak about Call of Cthulhu, the 7th edition. I've got the beautiful objects in front of me here. Now, when we gave um, Mike Mason the chance to pitch this to Grognards, why, mm. why should Grognards replace the copy, the loving copy that they've had for years and years with this new edition? Yes. And he said, well, it's in colour and we sorted out the grappling rules. I think <laughs> I I think he sold himself a bit short. Well, I so. think I think KCM always did Grognards a favour with Call of Cthulhu because they produced a number of new editions that were all exactly the same rules. <laughs> they virtually changed nothing in all those rules. Yeah. This is the only one that they've actually changed the rules significantly with, isn't it? Yeah. And we'll we'll, we'll look at this now. Of course, you're a resident rules lawyer. I yeah. am. You're a yeah, judge. Apparently so. And in this uh, game, of course, you can be a judge. Well, that's that's just what you want to be, isn't it? In Cthulhu, a judge. A judge? You want to be a judge? Mm. I don't know. It's NPC territory, that, isn't it? Surely. Of course, the judges are enemy, enemies of the people. <laughs> and Yes. And, yeah. you know, I, I certainly am. In order to help that, uh, in this game, uh, they can have history, yeah. law, library use. Law? Yeah. Is that a requirement for being a judge? <laughs> I think so. Oh, no. It's going to be interesting why things have gone wrong for me. They, they can listen, uh, know their own language, yeah. persuade. Did they get, like, 60% attack with a gavel? <laughs> 1D4, 1D4 plus 1 damage, gavel attack. Psychology. And, of course, intimidate. Oh, yeah. They need intimidation. Well, a man, a man wearing a wig. It is intimidating, isn't it? So I'll do the go. gavel. Okay, so, yeah, we're going we're gonna to look in uh, some um, details at, the, at this. So, it now comes in um, two books, the Investigator Handbook yeah. and the Keeper Rule Book. I don't like that. Why not? Well, you know, 
they do this thing, don't they? They split rule books up. I like I like the rules in one book. This is the game. There you go. That's the game. I see. I, th- I think it works. I yeah. think it works because, mm. you know, it, it, as as we said in the last one, this has got the potential to be an entry level game. So what mm. you follow is the pattern of the biggest entry level game, which is Dungeons and Dragons. And you have a yeah. player's yeah, handbook you do, yeah. and yeah. Um, mm. a dungeon master's guide. Yeah, and that's what you've got, isn't it? Yeah. And it's fair to say that in our experience of playing. You're more of an investigator, so we'll get more. I am, that's true. And I think my perspectives do often come from being a player. Yes. Whereas your perspectives come from being a keeper. Because you often run it, yeah. And I think there is that division. I think there is that division. There are people who play and people who run it. Mm. And I think you do have a different perspective. You do. I'm just looking at it from a tight-fisted point of view, that it means paying for two books, whereas before it was a lot cheaper because it was just one book, wasn't it? Yeah. Whereas now it's two. And I think that's the thing that people have, um, after the first part of this, they've said, is it worth it? Is it worth the mm. investment? Is it worth the significant outlay? And yeah. I suppose, for one thing, um, like Mike Mason said last time, um, if you're playing Cthulhu, then that's that's uh, you know that, that's a good thing. Carry on doing it. Don't feel yeah. the name, need, need to change. But Oh, they say that. We all think when there's a new edition out, we all we all immediately think. Yeah. At first, what we do is we go through. That's what I do anyway. We go through the process of. It doesn't matter. I don't need the new. I don't need the new edition. I'll just keep on playing. But eventually, it, it gets you, doesn't it? It does. I'll buy that eventually. I've not bought it yet, but I, I will. I will end up buying it. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> and I think with the prospect of. The new supplements that are coming out, the new adventures that are coming out, the new campaign yeah, packs yeah. are going to be in this edition. Yeah. You're going to think, well, yeah. In order to run that, I need to know it. You, you do, and there are new there are new things in it. I mean, it, it, there are new rules in it. There's new stuff, isn't there? New ways of doing yeah. things that ultimately people talk about, and then you think you feel like you're missing out a bit, you know. But but the, before we go into the rules, I think. You've got to say that what these books have, um, and something that they do better than the previous editions mm. is that the indexing is really good. It's, it's yeah. easy to find something because that's been the well. There's the which is the when we used to play. I, did I had, I had third edition I think. Yeah, that was okay. And did you and Eddie have? It was like a fifth edition, fifth or something, or sixth that really drove you both mad. I just remembered that. Yeah. I think you literally lost sanity, both of you, flicking through the rules when we were playing, trying to find, trying things. to find things. Was I had the I think third edition, which was, I might, I might be wrong, second or third, which was just a lot easier. Yeah. So as a, as a keeper, it is easier to play uh, with this. But the other thing is the other advantage that it's had over the other edition is that is the aesthetic feeling of it yeah it, it, it looks yeah. it looks fantastic the yeah. um illustrations of some yeah. of the monsters are great yeah. and that and that is a factor because as we've discussed in the previous podcast call of cthulhu is not my i'd say it's not my favorite game but it but it's not it's not top of my list is it? it's not one of my top it's not in my top three is it it's fair to say that's not that I dislike it, but it's not in my top three. But when you look through those rules, it does it does fire your imagination a bit, and and in some ways it's an interesting topic in itself, isn't it? Because it seems a little shallow to say 
a good rule book with good illustrations makes you feel that the game's better. But it but it does have that impact, doesn't it? It fires your imagination somewhat. Yeah. And I think the way it's written and the way it's put across. Speaking as someone who's not, as I say, not a massive fan of Call of Cthulhu, it makes me feel more excited about it. Yeah. Yeah. and if, if that was the thing about the third edition wasn't it the third edition that Games Workshop produced had those colour plates in and it yeah. was the colour plates that people yeah. remember mm. because they were so evocative Yeah, and yeah. some of the uh, pictures in here are great I mean, I'm looking at this one uh, chapter 14 Monsters, Beasts and Alien Gods and it's just so full of atmosphere yeah, yeah, Gary yeah. Torch with a uh, yeah. strange wolf-like creature cowering above him and, it, and, and that just instantly puts you in that place yeah, doesn't it yeah and it does help as well it does help because one of the difficulties with cthulhu is the difficulty of atmosphere as a games master isn't it creating atmosphere you know a lot of it relies on that and that's what can be difficult in terms of running it so it does help it does kind of fire your fire your imagination and i think the third thing overall just uh, building on that is the fact that they do use the knowledge accumulated of being keepers in mm. this keepers hat rule book it does use use that knowledge that's been accumulated over 30 odd years to kind of build it in yeah to help yeah, yeah, yeah. new uh, keepers who want mm. to create horror games of some of the tips and techniques yeah. it presents them as rules but really, that's what they have. That's what they are. They're kind of a rather than a mechanic, they are um, tips. You know, yeah. a, a tool for uh, yeah. Because the rule, the rule. I mean, we'll talk about the rules in a minute. But the rules haven't changed massively. They've they've, they've improved and developed some bits in, in interesting ways. But the rules aren't massive. It it is about that kind of guidance, isn't it? And tips and tricks and how to run things, which is important. It's important in Cthulhu because it's. I'm not just Cthulhu, I suppose horror role playing. You know, I would I would say I would say horror role playing games are probably the hardest to run effectively. They they are because although there's always that potential, like we we're saying uh, in our last part mm. of this podcast, of them just descending into an adventure, you know, just like a, yeah. less horror, more yeah. of a. And, of and I think adventure. as well, it's like it's like that the discussion we were having last time about character agency. Some some people on Twitter are responding to the last the last podcast had said that having no agency is is part of horror. So in horror movies, that sense of doom and sense of uh, not being in control are important aspects of horror films. And I think that's a fair point, but it's difficult, isn't it, to balance that against giving players a sense of control, but also giving them a sense of doom. And it's a very finely balanced thing. Yeah. That if you go one too much one way, players just feel doomed and and, and lacking any agency. If you go the other way, they're throwing sticks of dynamite at everything, and yeah. it turns into a dungeon. So it's a very very difficult thing to balance. And I think all that's really useful in. Uh, in the new edition, but the, the the focusing rather than rules, the game system because the game system's not there's not that much to it really, is there? It's quite a simple game. They're focusing more on how to run it and how to create that kind of atmosphere that you need. Yeah. So an example of that would be uh, foreshadowing results. So yes, a big emphasis on yeah, you know how why this dice roll that you're about to yeah. make 
is yeah. important yeah. and the consequences yeah. of your failure. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, that's something that you would do intuitively as a keeper, mm. having accumulated the experience. Yeah. But it's good to see that written down. Good to see that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you've never done yeah. it before, you know. And even if you do do it, it's a reminder because you, you get into bad habits, don't you? Or you realise, no, you've not been doing that. You used to, but now you've stopped. Yeah. And it's just a reminder. So let's have a look at the rules then, look in a bit more detail. And uh, as normal, this format, you have to pick three yes. of your favourite uh, highlights. Highlights, yes. And, what and of course, these are highlight. These are new rule highlights. So yeah. they? they're not, not called Cthulhu as such. It's the, the things that they've, they've developed. Mm. I think the first one, the one that stands out the most for me, and again, this, I think this is a player's perspective. I think I think the rules I've picked is very much a player's perspective. Um, is the luck rules in this edition? Uh, two things: one, luck is a statistic on its own, so it's like an individual attribute mm. that you roll separately. Isn't it? Yes, which in previous editions it was power. Yeah, I always thought it was a little bit unfair because what it did was um, puts too much emphasis on power. So power, you generate sanity from power, and you generate luck. And I think we once said. Um, I think it was one of Eddie's games. We said the only thing you need to worry about in Cthulhu is power, your power roll. If you roll a high power, you're going to be okay because yeah. you're going to be able to hold it together enough to run away. You're not going to you go mad, and you're lucky. Yeah, having having twelve hit points or fifteen hit points or sixteen hit points or eighteen hit points, it's kind of neither in or there, is it? Yeah. If a Shantak grabs hold of you, you're dead anyway. It doesn't matter, does it? But if you if you power if you you've got high power, you can stay sane and lucky and run away. Yeah. But it was always that thing. It was too much on power. Whereas now they've split it down. So power is for sanity, but luck. So you can be low power, high luck, or vice versa. And that does seem a little bit more even-handed, I think. But the aspect I really like about luck is that you can use luck to improve your chances with the dice rolls so you can burn luck points yeah. to make sure you make a roll so this this works a little differently than some of the other games that we've looked at recently um, so when we've looked at new editions so for example uh, Mithras mm. that has luck points luck points which allow you to roll things again not allow you to roll yeah, again yeah, yeah. not yeah. like that so you can use it to subtract from a dice roll yeah. so that you yeah come underneath your exactly. uh, target yes. amount yeah so if you need a 50 if you're 50 chance and you roll a 54 you could spend four luck points or burn four luck to yeah. lower the dice roll couldn't you that's yeah. the way it works yeah so yeah. your luck points out of 100 yeah. will start to diminish as you use these in yeah. certain situations yeah. so, so look looks 3d6 isn't it yeah um and yeah. then times by five gives yeah. you 100 yeah out of Maximum of 100, you know, well, yeah. Yeah. might be 65, 75, 45, whatever. But yeah, you burn the luck points. So they're like percentage points almost that you can reduce from a roll to make sure you achieve the roll. But yeah. of course, every time you do that, you're running out of luck. So you can have a character, I suppose, who, who dies because the luck runs out, Yeah, which is yeah. quite funny. <laughs> it's kind of in keeping almost with yeah. that horror, horror genre, isn't it, of someone dying because the luck runs out. Yeah. But I like it because... It, again, player's perspective. It gives you a bit more of a chance. And I think it helps games masters as well. Because we've we've discussed this before, haven't we? That, and I'm sure we'll discuss it again. 
that problem of basic role playing where spot hidden item library use those kind of skills where you want to make the role and you just miss it and even the games master wants you to make the role the games master wants you to do the spot hidden item in yeah, the, yeah. the uh, cultist office to find the secret drawer but you all blow it whereas burning luck allows you to make the role yeah you know i mean it's difficult if you roll you know you need 50 and you roll 80 yeah. obviously a lot i don't know about you though but that. i'm not sure that um i would use my luck up looking for a book no no <laughs> <laughs> that's true <laughs> I'd keep hold of it yeah. until I was hanging from a cliff with yeah, a shantai breathing down my neck you know? that's true but but sometimes you might do there's always that thing you're, you're absolutely right if you're looking for a, a, a secret compartment in a, in a desk for example and you roll 85 and you needed a 50 or less you're not going to you're not going to do that but you do we, we've all been on the receiving end of those rolls where you roll 52 yeah. Or a fifty three or a fifty one and you think for one point look I can find it, I can do it. And in that sense it's quite useful. It helps the flow of the game, I think, a little bit. Yeah. Can do. Having said that, that is one of the most um I think you're right to pick this because it is one of the most prominent rule changes, isn't it? Because yeah. essentially if you if you're a grognard returning to this game there will be most most of it will be familiar to you. Oh yeah, yeah, it's the same game really. And some of the things that have been changed around the um, edges are almost like um, house rules that have been adopted and incorporated. Yeah, in there, and yeah, it fits in yeah. with the idea that this is a accumulated wisdom over thirty years. I find it extraordinary that it's presented an optional rule mm. when some of the other rules are. Uh, presented like as mainstream as part yeah, of yeah. the core of the rules and that bonus dice and penalty dice is yeah. put in there as one of the a part of the core rule set and where that, this works is a bit like advantage and disadvantage in D&D yeah. 5th edition where you can have an extra dice as the tens in a percentage Yeah. so if you're yeah, 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 yeah. If you were, if you're in uh, driving in mm. um, a squally weather and the bad yeah. rain, you know you're going to be at a disadvantage. So um, you're going to have to roll three dice: one as the units, one's the tens, yeah. uh, two of the tens, to the highest. As somebody as somebody told these people that this is basic role playing, so you're <laughs> always at a disadvantage. <laughs> I mean, we're going to come on to this, but you, you're always at a disadvantage, aren't you? You know, you spot, yeah, you spotted an item or you're firing a gun's only 50%. Don't make it any more difficult. It's difficult enough as it is. <laughs> What's wrong with these people? <laughs> Hang on a minute. There's these terrible monsters that could kill you, drive you insane and gobble you up in a single combat round. Do you know what? Should we make it more difficult for people? That's a stupid rule. Do you know what? I, I have to say, all, aren't all rules optional? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Aren't they? yeah. <laughs> I always find that odd in a rule book where they say optional rules. <laughs> They're all optional, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just find I just I think it's interesting that that is uh, that look rule, which I think is a great addition. Yeah, to is the is presented as optional, so if you can, you're allowed to ignore that one if you want. But other other but, things, yeah. yeah, making things more difficult for people. Sheesh, oh, like bonus. <laughs> something wrong with the, the mas- it's masochistic role playing, that isn't it? Yeah. It's not hard enough. This game, <laughs> character killed every session. <laughs> if, you, 
it'd just give you a bonus as well. But... Well, yeah, I suppose. Could you, could it being away. Cthulhu, I focused on the penalty. You are, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Okay, that so... says all about your game matching style, <laughs> I think. <laughs> okay, so that's that. That's luck. Okay, and next one, what have you got? Well, it's a bit similar actually, because uh, it does, I think, just similar things. But you can uh, now you can push a roll, can't you? Mm. So there's a rule where you can you fail a roll, and and I suppose it it, it works for rolls like that where burning luck isn't an option because you've missed it by such a degree that you wouldn't spend thirty forty points luck, um, but you can choose to roll it again, but if you do the consequences of failure are more dire yeah. consequences, um, and I think you have to explain to the games master why you can roll it again, don't yeah. you? Uh, but it's quite a nice touch because it it, it 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 taps into those kind of more modern games where narratives play more of a role. So it will let you roll this again, but as a player, you have to explain why. Yeah. Yeah, how come you can try this again? You know what what so what are the circumstances? Yeah. And as a games master, you're going to present them with a worse consequence if they fail. Yeah, you know that kind of thing. Which so an, an idea an idea would be if you're looking for something. Um, you might decide to spend longer doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And thereby you yeah. have a greater chance of alerting yeah. somebody. Absolutely. Or you're trying to pick a lock uh, quietly, but then you think, well, I'll, I'll blow, throw caution to the wind and try and do it as quickly as I can or, or in a better way, but it's going to make noise, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It does, it does work uh, really well, and I think we need to explore this further because we, when we were doing uh, Fungi, with um, Eddie, and it did feel a bit more like a re-roll, didn't it? We kind of defaulted yeah. into can, can I push it? And uh, yes, you can. Yes, you can push it. <laughs> uh, and I've, I've thrown myself off my own thought there, but it seemed to just become like a re-roll mechanic. Yeah, but it should have some kind of narrative element to it. Consequence, so, yeah. Yeah, you can try and search the room you know and make the role but if you want to make the role again you're going to have to come up with some explanation some narrative or something in your character background as well you know it could be yeah. something like you know you've encountered this you know you're trying to you know trying to climb a tree or something and you you fail you could say well i used to climb trees like this all the time as a child so i can roll it again i've got a better chance that kind of thing isn't it it's kind yeah. of bringing more narrative in although don't you think and, and this is controversial view now it would be controversial on the podcast these rules that we've just talked about, they're almost accommodating the fact that they've realised that in basic role-playing, you can't do anything. Yeah, yeah. It's hard yeah. to make the rolls. Yeah. The game system is such that it's hard to make the rolls. So they're bringing in rules. They're bringing in rules that, that make it easier to make the rules. Well, that says, rules, well, that says something about the game system, doesn't it? Yeah. Actually. You know, you're saying it's controversial, but I think it's more... Her- well, it's... It, heresy. Because... I- <laughs> What, what, what I think that's not. the best form of controversy. If you're going to be controversial, I think heresy is because know. what I'm seeing in you, Judge uh, Blythe, <laughs> is a shift, a change. You've these, changed, haven't I? Over yeah, these past yeah. two years, mm. into into this person who has some reluctance to play basic role playing. I do, I do have a degree of reluctance because I think um, this is even more heretical. I'm going to quote an American, 
But when you, I think you did a game online with some people, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, with um, RPG Academy. RPG Academy. And one of the RPG Academy people said that they found RuneQuest frustrating because they spent the whole session being sort of not being able to do things, not being able to make roles. And there is that problem, isn't there, uh, with basic role playing? That even even you know the, you sometimes look at a basic role playing character sheet, and you look at a skill that's fifty percent, and your instinct as someone who's familiar with basic role playing, we're very very familiar with it because we back in the day we played RuneQuest Call of Cthulhu a lot. It was our primary role playing system, wasn't it? Yeah. You would look at a score of fifty or sixty percent in something, and you would think. Pretty good. I'm, I'm pretty. That's pretty good, isn't it? But it's not, is it? Because half the time you're failing. Half the time you're failing, and when you play a basic role playing game, that system, you become painfully aware that you're failing. Hang on, hang on. I'm fifty percent spotted, and I, oh, I've not done it. Hang on, now I'm fifty percent of this. I'm better than you. You're only thirty-five percent. I'm fifty percent. Oh, no, I've not done it again. Because you don't, and it's almost like those rules in New Cthulhu. Are actually acknowledging that they're acknowledging it pushing a roll oh just let him roll it again can't do it roll it again burn your luck seems to me i don't know might be wrong but there's an element of that isn't there that they are saying oh, there's a suggestion but but that, but games evolve don't they yeah games they do evolve. They evolve i'm not and there i like i like them uh, don't be wrong i like I like those rules. I think they're good, but they do. It does seem to me, in the back of my mind, it's as if there's an acknowledgement that people are failing roles. So you know, even if you're quite good at something with a percentage system, you're still failing the role. Yeah. So we've we've built something in to give you a bit of a chance, but that's in turn suggests it's a very fail-heavy system. If that makes sense. Which we've we've experienced, haven't we? You know, we, we have experienced, but to me, that's part of the fun of the game. It is, of course, it's the fun of the game. I mean, yeah, I'm not. It, it is the fun of the game, and of course, when you miss a roll by one percent, there's an element of humour in that, isn't there? There is that thing. It's yeah. quite funny when you spend a whole session, you you seventy percent of something, you never make the roll, and it is funny, of course, it is. But I still think it's an interesting development in basic role playing that pushing rolls, burning luck are all built around giving you another crack yeah at, at achieving the role yeah you know it's not it's not so much it, it's not as this not quite the same or it doesn't feel the same as saying giving you advantage in a role it it's basically saying you can modify the role or roll it again but that's almost like we're giving you another chance because we're almost acknowledging that the first time you rolled it you didn't have much of a chance anywhere yeah. that's how it feels next one okay and you've got uh, you've got attribute distribution well it's not so much attributes At but it's, attribute it's distribution skills it's skills, skills right. skill points because in Cthulhu you have a character background and you get points to distribute amongst your skills and what they do in this one, and I think it's a really good development, and it's a very simple development, really. It's a kind of blaringly obvious, glaringly obvious development, is you calculate the points based on not just education, 
because I think in the old system it was education, wasn't it? Yeah, it was better. And intelligence. It, it, education and intelligence. Which um, always seemed a bit wrong because if you picked, say, a criminal background, yeah. well, a criminal won't be well educated, but that doesn't mean they're not very good at what they do. Yeah. So now it works off different stats. So it might be, you know, yeah. if you're an actor, for example, it might be charisma times 10 and intelligence times 10. It's other, other attributes feed into divvying up your skill points yeah which i think is a good a good thing because it again it, it does a little bit like what the look and power thing does it seemed to me that there was a lot of emphasis on education yeah in and any kids who are listening that's not a bad thing okay <laughs> any younger listeners education is important yeah being cthulhu it was too important <laughs> that's my view it was too important I'm schooled in the University of Life. The University of Life, exactly. Yeah. But it did, it seemed too important because some of the backgrounds, education, you're a hobo. You picked hobo. Education's, you're not going to be well educated. Well, you might be, I don't know. A hobo. Down on his luck. Down on his luck. No, I think think uh, it's good to shout out for the whole character creation process. Yeah, it is made very easy, yes. and it's described yeah. very well in the in the rule book, uh, and I particularly like how they illustrate the character sheet by having call out boxes explaining yeah. what yeah. goes in each of the area. It's a much better kind of walkthrough of creating a character. Because if you go to a convention, because um, mm. we're going to do that tonight, aren't we? We're going to play a game with a group yeah. of people um, who don't know the game. Yeah. The first thing you do is give them a tour of the character sheet, and it does that really. Yeah, uh, it does that really well. It does do it well, and I tell you what else. It, I think it's a very good rule book because we've we've commented on this before that we've picked up some rule books, um, role playing game rule books, and we've learnt them, and we've explored them, but we've commented to each other that if you didn't know anything about role playing game and you pick this up, you would not have a clue. Yeah. You would not stand a chance. I remember we, the, the, the most obvious example was RuneQuest 6, which is now Mithras, isn't it? Yeah. Um, when you bought that, we, we got very excited about it. But I can remember saying to you, if you, if you didn't know what a role-playing game was and you picked this thing up, you would think, what the hell? This is impenetrable. But I think what they do in Cthulhu, it, it's a good... Given that it's a particularly quirky game in some respects, it's not a natural RPG. You're not playing a wizard or a warrior or whatever or space pirate. They do a very good job of explaining it to the uninitiated. Yeah, they in do. some respects, and that's that's quite an achievement, now, I think. And what they do do as well is give you, um, I think, one of the best toolkits for creating a character very easily mm. um, to fit in with the period detail. Yeah. I think it's hard to do sometimes. I think people um, they either over-labour it or it, it's not enough. Yeah. And what this one does is it gives you um, some idea of how to develop a backstory and it gives you a set of tables yeah. and um, to understand what locations are important to the, the character, what... Mm people important to the character some of the experience it's like building up a replicant you know you can use in a little bit plugging in bits of memory and uh, items to create a 1920s investigator yes and something it did and I'm going to call back now to the top secret episode where you said 
with these modern games, the most difficult thing is, is to come up with a name. Well, they've thought of that as well. Because there's a table. That's a table of names. A table oh, yes, of names. Of course, yeah. Um, so, you know, you, it, for males and females, yeah, yeah. and you can just pick from mm. this list and they're period appropriate names yeah. to help you. So, that, I think that's uh, that's really good. I think they, the whole character creation. Yes. Uh, and, really and, and that's important, isn't it? Because, as I said earlier, running a horror game is difficult for a games master, for a keeper. Uh, to create um, atmosphere and those kind of things. But part of that atmosphere and part of that process relies on good players and good characters and fully fleshed out characters. It works better. Again, you're going back to a kind of, you know, traditional sword and sorcery role-playing game. Whilst character background is important, is to be encouraged, it doesn't matter as much, but the whole atmosphere of a horror game and and that thing of the games master's creating an environment that that's a bit threatening, that has jeopardy, that has a bit of mystery, and part of that is how your character will react to this. How would your character react to this thing? They're not necessarily. I'm hark back to D and D, but you know what I mean. It's not like they're going to just kick the door down, draw the sword, and kill everything in the room. It, it's about them being a person in a stressful situation and how are they going to react so character background is important you know yeah and they do they do a good job of that i think in those rules of giving that sense of being able to flesh out a character that feels living and breathing yeah in this environment and, and not just defined by uh, numbers and an occupation which is all you had to go at yeah uh, previously yeah, so, yeah 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 so those are your uh, favorite and we've got a, a sense of um, stuff that he didn't like it, it kind of continues that thing of distributing points there's not enough points to distribute well, that's the, yeah I think that's the thing I still don't like about it that whilst the, the way the points are generated is better I mean again you can fix this can't you yeah, any games master can fix it by just giving people more points or whatever but the way it's done in the book I don't think they give, they're a bit stingy with the points Yeah. so when you generate a character again they end up being not that good certain things so in the character I generated Freddy's game I decided to be the con man wasn't he yeah um, that he wasn't very good at conning people it's that yeah. thing he was 40% at it at those kind of skills that involve conning people acting and persuasion and 40% 45% because I didn't have enough points unless I was prepared to bung everything on one thing yeah which you want a broad spread don't you yeah um, it was just that sense that he was better than your character at conning people but he still wasn't very good at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your character was would have been awful at, at trying to con someone, but my con man was just marginally not, better. Not that good at it. Yeah. But given that he was a con man, you sort of think he should be good at it. Yeah. And particularly given that in Cthulhu, you might not last that long. Yeah. Um, you're not going to get the experience rolls to get your character up, up to, to really level. high decent levels of percentages so yeah. I just think the points is the, it's better the way they do it but it's still a bit stingy yeah well I want to um, give a shout out for something that I like um, a lot about it and I do think that you know looking on forums and uh, listening to uh, other podcasts and other stalwarts of the game talk about it they're kind of a bit dismissive of this but I think it is um, good and that is to do with the uh, your core attributes 
being multiplied by five mm. uh, at the start. So you still roll them the same. So you roll them on uh, 3d6 and multiply apply them to create a percentage. And the reason why I like that is that you end up with um, grades of uh, percentage mm. within yeah. within that. So you can have um, you know critical success and then various levels of success. So what it allows you to do is to create different levels of difficulty very easily. Yes. So where previously I might tell you to um, give me your dexterity times three. Mm. I don't need to do that now. I can say, well, you know, let's do it at um, a half value or a fifth value yeah. that, uh, within there. And what that allows then is something a bit like the James Bond game where mm. you can have a pause rolls to have levels of success. Um, so you're competing against um, another, so if you're hiding or looking look, look at it, yeah. but the level of success will determine how well you, well yeah. you do it. Yeah, yeah. And how this is different from how it's presented in something like Mithras, uh, uh, RuneQuest 6, is that it's much more straightforward. It's explained in a much easier way mm. and easier to apply from a keeper point of view. Um, so I want to give a shout out for that because I do think yeah, that right. that is an innovation that you see now in a lot of percentage-based games. Yeah, and it goes back to that James Bond game, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, which is an iteration of RuneQuest. Yeah, um, but I think it's adopted here really well. I, I like it. At first, I didn't think I would. The idea of times in your three d six times it by five, yeah. and then five three and just on its own, oh, on, its own. on its own as a, but as a percentage rather than as one to eighteen, isn't it? Or three to eighteen, it's just treated as a percentage when it's on yeah. its own. But um, no, I agree with you, and it gives it gives you as a games master something to kind of aim for in terms of deciding how difficult something should be. You've got yeah. the three numbers there that you can go, right, that's standard, that's yeah. difficult, that's really, really, really difficult. And I know what, I, I know what I'm aiming for rather than plucking, because we all did this in RuneQuest, you know, pluck, plucking things out of the air, like you said, um, I don't, oh, dexterity times two. Yeah, yeah. Dexterity times three, dexterity times four, you know. <laughs> you always think, well, never, never very consistent, was it? Whereas at least now you've got the three target numbers where you can go, okay, I think it's going to fall into that bracket, so it's yeah. going to be that one. That's the one it's going to be. Yeah. And and it's not a massive, it. it's not a massive innovation, but again, it's the way that it's presented that I like. Yeah. I think it's very intuitive yeah. how it's presented, yeah. and yeah. I think its application in games will be easier. Yeah, I, I agree. And it, yeah, you say it's not a massive innovation, but it, it offers clarity, doesn't it? It offers a bit of clarity, and that sometimes sometimes they can be the best innovations in a game. Something that just gives you, as a games master and a player, a bit of clarity over what you're aiming for. Yes. And what you what you're giving people. What as a games master, what you're giving people to aim for, and as a player, knowing what you're aiming for, that sometimes can be, you know, a kind of really useful thing. So, how do we answer the question that's been posed to us? Should people go out and buy it? Or should they stick with their existing edition? Oh. Well, you, you're going to go and buy it, aren't you? Go and buy it. You're going to buy it anywhere. Even if we said don't buy it, they're going to buy it. I would say, 
I, I was genuinely saying, I, I'm not somebody, as you know, I don't... No, no. I don't buy things... Lightly. Lightly. I, I get... I'm not a collector. No. Neither of us are collectors. No, we're not. No. If we're going to get something, we're going to no. get it to use it. Yeah. And I think that this is your old familiar game. Yeah. Spruced up and yeah. given clarity. Yes. But more than that, it's worth buying on its own just for the source material. Yeah. I would say because that. it's rich, it's full of atmosphere, and you pick up a page, which I often do. And you start reading it, and then ideas start springing in your mind. And, as and a that's keeper. that's what you need, isn't it? That that is one of the key things with a rule book. That you know, if it starts ideas firing off ideas, then that's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah. You know, so no, I I think it would enhance it would enhance your game of Cthulhu, wouldn't it? New and improved. It's the same. Same old Cthulhu, but new and improved. <laughs> Thanks, Blythe. Okay. Are you going to go off and intimidate someone then? Uh, I am, yeah. There isn't another bit. Huge thanks to Mike Mason for taking part and being our guest for this episode. In November 2017, we had our second grog meet, getting together with some of the grog squad in Manchester, UK, for a day of gaming. Check out the grognardfiles.com for some of the photographs I took on the day. It was great. The next goal of the Patreon campaign is to do a virtual grog meet to give players who can't make it to Manchester a chance to take part online. The podcast will always be free and the Patreon campaign helps to support the running costs of the show, helps us source new material for content and allows us to do other projects such as the grogzine which will be going out to our current backers in December and will be available for new backers on PDF before the end of the year. Thanks for the generosity and good wishes of all the members of the Grog Squad. There are a $1 level and a $3.5 level, but this time we've had new $5 backers, so I thought I'd give them a period name from the Investigator Handbook. OK, first up, it's Multiverse Jumper, whoever he is, for when he hands up in the early 20th century America. So let's have a look. And that's Clifford Lockhart. Clifford Lockhart. That's a fantastic pulp name. Thanks, Clifford. Mike Hobbs of the Meeples and Miniatures podcast has upped his stake. So he'll always be known as Herman Slaughter from now on. Thanks, Herman. Finally, James Shevlin has joined and he is Barnabas Riffenberg. So thanks, James. I mean, Barnabas. Next time, in a break from the usual format, me and Blythe will be taking a look back over 2017 and doing a review of a momentous year in our role-playing lives. We'll also be awarding the Groggies the sought-after awards of the Grognard Files. Until then, adios, amigos.